Well, good morning. I'm excited to be uh, in front of you today. So if you would turn in your Bibles uh, to Romans chapter 3 in the Pew Bibles, that is page 1,118. Um, while you turn there, just a quick brief note. Um, obviously, by the sermon title, we can't help ourselves. We're going to be looking at Paul as he writes to the Romans um, kind of about the human sinful condition, uh, but I also want you to maybe have in the back of your mind as well the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, the three parts are misery, deliverance, and then gratitude, and I think we see that movement um, in Romans 3 here as well. Let's begin. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision, much in every way? To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of masks is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? He is not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So I kind of gained my um, sermon title off of a play of a work of art that was displayed from 2016 to, 2008 to 2019 at the Guggenheim Museum in New York City. It was commissioned by two Chinese artists 
uh, Sun Yuan and Peng Yu. The piece was called Can't Help Myself. Uh, like a majority of artwork, it wasn't really popular per se during the time it was displayed. It kind of gained more popularity afterwards uh, via some uh, TikTok videos that went viral in uh, 2021. This was the first artwork uh, at Guggenheim that was robotic. Um, so essentially, these artists with some engineers developed a robotic arm that made 32 different movements, um, but it had a goal of keeping this red liquid contained inside of this uh, four-walled cell. When the ex exhibit first uh, was released, the arm performed very gracefully in pulling back the liquid to the center, uh, containing it uh, in a nice even circle. It actually even had time to show off and do some of those extra movements that it had. But as the years went on and time uh, progressed, uh, it was a lot harder for it to do these things. It had a harder time containing the mess, it wasn't as fluid, um, and eventually they unplugged it uh, to take the machine out of its misery, we could say. It is important to note that uh, as the robot attempted to contain the mess, it made a mess um, as well. The red liquid would splatter both on itself and the walls around it. Um, and even if it wanted to, ultimately, the robotic arm could not help itself as it was programmed by humans. It could only do what it was programmed to do. While many arguments could be made for the interpretation of such a work of art, my point in using it today is that as human beings, we too cannot help ourselves. Perhaps we think we can, as we often try to clean up our messes or attend to self-help. But ultimately, we wear out. We make messes of our messes even if we were trying to clean them or cover them up. I think King David could attest to this. We truly cannot help ourselves because sin pervades our lives, affects us, and leaves us in despair and misery. This may seem bleak, but I assure you we have a greater hope than the robotic arm does because of Jesus Christ. Before jumping straight into Romans 3, uh, to give a quick sketch of what leads up to Paul's question in verse 1. In Romans 1.18, Paul proclaims that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Paul then expounds what type of wrath that will be seen. In chapter 2, Paul moves to the Jews who dishonor and disobey God. They too receive the wrath of God. This sets us up for Romans 3. And we see Paul ask an important question. Then what advantage has the Jew? What advantage has the Jew? At first glance, it seems that whether one is a Gentile or a Jew makes no difference. Everyone falls under sin and the wrath of God by the virtue of her own works. But being a Jew, or in our case a Christian, is still of value as God has entrusted his word to us. Uh, we have that, um, that word, his oracles, that he's given to us that we can know and learn from him. So these people of God, they hold a covenant position that is very close to God. There's a history between God and his people. We see this throughout the Old Testament narrative as God is bound to his people covenantally and continually makes covenants with them. Um, even when they wander and stray from God, he is faithful to them. Hence why in verses 3 to 4, Paul states, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. So even though Israel and we are unfaithful, God's faithfulness is still there. Despite these many sins and faults, God promises to save us and redeem us. But just because people are covenanted to God does not mean that we are free from the judgment of the Gentiles. We too receive 
death for our sin. God is not great on a curve. We're all held to the standard of his law, which we fall short. As sinners, we are all subject to the wrath of God. Paul makes it clear in verse 9 that the Jews are no better off because all are under sin. He states, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already been charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And this leads me to my first main point. We're all sinners. I think that since we're all gathered here today in the presence of God to glorify Him, I think it's safe to say that we know that we're sinful. Uh, if we weren't, I don't think we would be here. So I'm not here to beat you down with sin or with these words, but I do want to show that we need to be reminded and that we need to understand these truths. Because we might not always live it out with the people that we encounter. I know that this can be my own personal experience. Um, as you speak with Christians and non-Christians, um, it often seems like a common complaint against Christians in the church is that there's a haughtiness. Oh, well, you Christians think that you're better than everyone else, don't you? And that is oftentimes how we are perceived, whether it is true or not, um, is a case-by-case basis. But I believe that when we can all acknowledge our sin, hopefully that humbles us so that in our interactions with those around us, uh, we do not think too highly of ourselves so that it might see uh, the Christ, Christ's love through us. It's also important for me to note that as we saw in that quick overview of Romans 1 and 2 that sometimes when we see God's wrath released against the unrighteous, uh, we think, hey, perfect, they deserve it. Um, but we also need to continue to Romans 2 and think that our work, um, think as well that we are under that same judgment so that we're not too quick to, to judge those who are unrighteous. And may we remember the words of Habakkuk, the prophet, when he says, in your wrath, remember mercy. So it might be easy to pray certain imprecatory psalms to people who are out doing wicked things, but we should also know that in doing so, we are praying against ourselves when we do this, because we too are unrighteous. We do hold a privileged position, though, as Christians, since we were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We partake in His body, which was broken for us, and His blood, which was shed for us. But we should be cautious that we never see ourselves as above others. We should not lift ourselves up, but rather, we should be lifted up by Christ. Just as sinful pagans, Jews or Christians, are unable to help themselves against the wrath of God, neither can we. I once had a pastor tell me that the great equalizer of the gospel is that we are no worse than anyone, nor are we any better than anyone. This leads to my second point, that when we proclaim the gospel, both to non-Christians and also to fellow Christians, we must remember that it entails both the good news of Christ's love for us, but also the bad news that we're sinners. We cannot separate either one of these. But why, some may I ask? After all, isn't it much better to tell people the good news that Jesus loves them? It's no fun telling somebody that they live in sin. It's no fun telling myself that I live in sin. It's something that's tough to do. And perhaps... After all, maybe these are just the words of the Apostle Paul and not of Jesus. Wasn't Jesus, after all, loving and kind? And Paul seems to be too judgmental of sin rather than accepting of it. These same sort of people might say that if we want to proclaim the gospel to the lost, we better only mention the good part about the love of Christ and how he died for their sins and not the bad news that we are sinners in need of his grace. 
In part, the gospel of the good news requires the bad news that we are sinners. You can't have one without the other. I raise this point for two reasons. First, we do a great injustice to humanity if we do not proclaim our sin. Think of a doctor who has a terrible diagnosis to give to a patient. He could tell them, hey, you're doing just fine. Um, But that's not very loving, is it? If when in fact they need a serious treatment. Cornelius Van Til, he was a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, used an example of a doctor who invents a medicine that is able to bring people back to life from death. So the doctor makes this potion, he goes to the graveyard and says, all who are able, come, receive. Well, the point of the story to that is those people who are dead, they're unable to come to Christ. They're unable to come to the doctor who has the medicine for them. It's only by the work of Christ that we are able to come by his grace. Secondly, um, we need to be reminded of our sins, but also of the good news of Christ, because the story of Jesus even at his birth, reminds us that we are sinners. The Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 1, verse 21, in the birth story of Christ, says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the very inherent part of Jesus coming into the world is to save us from our sins. He came to save us, which is an action of love, but we must not lose sight of our own human condition. It's because of sin that Christ came. However, we must remember that this is a balancing act. We can't, when we go to proclaim the gospel, to people say, you're a sinner, and leave it there. Or we can't go to them saying, Jesus loves you, and leave it there. We must balance both parts of the action. Because that's the main thrust of the gospel, that there's bad news for humanity, but there's even better news, the great news of the gospel. And if we were to break down Romans 3, we see that bad news in verses 1 through 20, as Paul moves through and tells us our human condition that none of us are righteous, we're all sinful. But then we get to the good part. Verse 21, when he talks about God's righteousness and how it's been manifested. And in verse 23, how we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So as people who have been justified by the gift of grace, we no longer can boast of ourselves because we're unable to help ourselves. We don't save ourselves. It's only by the blood of Christ, by his death on the cross. God has done all this to show his righteousness, that he is both just and the justifier. He's able to accuse us because we are sinful. We don't uphold his law, but he justifies us because he has died for us. So as I'd mentioned in the Heidelberg Catechism, Um, We had that movement from misery to deliverance to gratitude. So the misery be verses 1 through 20. The deliverance is verses 21 through 26. And then in verses 27 through the end of the chapter, we have that uh, part of gratitude where we're living not the law of works, but the law of faith. God has redeemed us for those good works uh, that we do out of gratitude. I did find it interesting, obviously, uh, when you read such a long chapter, we can't dive into the nitty-gritty of every detail or else we'd be here for years. Um, So we're kind of just doing some broad strokes here of this this chapter. But if we look as those who have received the mercy of the blood of Christ, um, if we look at verses 24 through 25, Paul uses three metaphors for us. First, he uses the language of justification, which is a legal term that means acquitted. 
This justification is a once-for-all declaration that God has declared the sinner um, justified, that our sins are no more. And this verdict, we must also remember, is not declared at the end of our life, a decision that God makes upon based upon how we've lived, the life that he's seen us, but rather he makes it before our life. The second metaphor is that of redemption, which would conjure up the, the thought of a ransom payment similar to slaves being released from their service or captive prisoners being released after being captured by an enemy. In this redemption, we are freed from the destruction of our sin. Lastly, the third metaphor that Paul uses is that of propitiation. It's not a common term that we use, but the Greek word is hilasterion. When this word is used in Greek, it often um, was used in the Greek, Greek Septuagint, uh, which was the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, and it was used 21 times. It was often used to, to describe the gold-plated cover that covered the Ark of the Covenant, which was uh, on the Day of Atonement, it would be covered with blood. So the image that Paul's getting at by using uh, this Greek word is that Christ's blood is covering us and atoning for us just as the sacrificial blood covered the Ark of the Covenant on the Day of Atonement. His blood does great things for us. It's important to note that in all these metaphors, the work is being done not by us, but by Christ and his action. We truly cannot help ourselves. It's only by the work of Christ and his sacrifice that we're given new life and forgiveness from sins. Due to our inability, we realize that we cannot boast in our position. We are not justified by our actions, but rather are condemned by the law and justified in Christ. But as I mentioned, that gratitude that we live to Christ for being delivered from judgment, from the death that we deserve, we go out and live faithful lives according to him, once again, not by our own works, but by him. So if we summarize, we look back to the three points. First, that we're all sinners. Secondly, we cannot separate the gospel and the good news only. We must proclaim both the fact that humanity is sinful, but the good news comes through justification through Christ. And lastly, we cannot boast in ourselves and our good works, but rather we must lean on Christ and his redemptive work. We live lives fully for him out of our gratitude. So why so much focus on sin then in Paul's letter here? Well, obviously chapter 3 is just one part of the story. He goes on further to tell more about Christ's redemption and work. But if we remember our catechism in those three parts, we know that misery is actually only nine of the 129 questions and answers that we go about, which is 6.9% of the entire catechism, whereas the section on deliverance accounts for nearly 60% of the question and answers. This shows that we need to be reminded of our sinful nature, but we should not stay there. And when we teach others the Gospels, that should also be our, our goal. We should start with the misery, but we should quickly move on to the deliverance and gratitude that we have. We cannot stay in our sins, but must move on to the life we have in Christ. Finally, when we recognize our sin, it allows us to lean more heavily on the grace and mercy that we've been given. For this reason, I found it necessary to move through Romans 3, that we might be reminded of our sin, but that we might hold tight to Christ and the grace that he's given to us. Without it, we are nothing. 
This passage has had practical implications in my own life as it reminds me that I'm no better than anyone and that I must show his love and mercy to all that are around me that I might not think too highly of myself. And as we go out as people of Christ, as, as our mission in the world, and we seek to evangelize and live lives that show the world that we belong to him, and in our conversations with others, may we show them the same grace that we've been given, uh, but also remind them that they are sinners as well in need of his love. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you knowing that we sin and we fall short. We hold on to the blood of Christ, which was shed for us, that we might draw close to you. May our encounters with others showcase your love by not thinking too highly of ourselves. May our lives be lived for your praise and your glory forever and ever. Amen. We'll now move on to our...